Welcome to this special Italian wine podcast broadcast. This episode is a recording off Clubhouse, the popular drop-in audio chat. This Clubhouse session was taken from the Wine Business Club and Italian Wine Club. Listen in as wine lovers and experts alike engage in some great conversation on a range of topics in wine. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. And remember to subscribe and rate our show wherever you tune in. While you drink, don't forget this tasting test. Swirl, swirl, sniff, sniff, sip, sip, and spit. Once again, here we go. Swirl, sniff, sip, sniff. Welcome, everybody. My name is Stevie Kim, and this is Clubhouse. I know it's kind of old-fashioned, I, I suppose. Nobody's on Clubhouse anymore. But we are still recording on Clubhouse. And this is the series we call The Ambassador's Corner. And we replay this episode on Italian Wine Podcast. We've been doing this for, I suppose, about a couple of years now since the pandemic. We've been doing it for longer, perhaps. Laika, why don't you jump on and tell us how long we've been doing this? Oh, I actually don't recall, but I think it's been like two to three years now. I know, and crazy, I, right? For more than 100 episodes, I think. So definitely more than two years then. Yes, yes, and, exactly. And thanks to Laika, who is our clubhouse manager, uh, we've been going strong since the very, very beginning. And we continue to do this every single week, except the week of uh, Vinitaly, And I was going to say Wine to Wine, but actually we double down during Wine to Wine. We have other interviews. Is that correct? What's the plan for Wine to Wine, Laika? Yeah, we're going to have a podcast marathon for Wine to Wine. So we're we're going to be very busy during Wine to Wine. But then, so we won't have a lot of Clubhouse, but we we have a lot of buffer for Clubhouse. But then during Wine to Wine, we've invited uh, some producers to be part of the podcast marathon. Um, that's going to be during Wine to Wine, and Cynthia and McKenna will be interviewing them to, to talk about their wineries and the, the wine they want to feature. Okay, excellent. For the our audience, our listeners out there, this is the way it works. We have one of our Italian wine ambassadors at large. They get to interview one of their favorite producers. From the Mod Squad today, we have Christopher Sachs. Ciao, Christopher. Ciao, Stevie. Ciao. How are you? Okay. He is our newly anointed Italian wine ambassador, and he will be running the room today. Christopher, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I'm a wine distributor with Michael Skernick Wines and Spirits based in New York and New Jersey, where I, I sell all of the good wine, spirits, sake, and cider to anyone who will listen to me speak. And uh, on the side, I also run a company called Travel by Wine, which is a education and seller development and consulting firm that I, I kind of do my, myself to have some fun on the side. So, Christopher, why did you choose Arpepe as your favorite producer today? So I, I chose Arpepe uh, because Isabella and I connected back in person at Opera Wine 2022 to Italy 
we began importing and working with their wines just before the COVID-19 pandemic began. And uh, it was, of course, a difficult stage to really launch a brand. But we, Isabella was lucky enough to share the Valtellina Roccarose uh, Reserva 20, uh, 2002, and I absolutely fell head over heels for the wine. So uh, I want to, I've always been infatuated with the family, the history, the region, the drinkability of all of the wines from young to old, and uh, just fascinated with their process. Yeah, I, I hope they'll be making more wines because every time I go to a restaurant and I order their wine, it's always out. It's always sold out, so it's kind of frustrating, but that's really good for them, good on them, that they're incredibly popular, although it's a very niche market, if you will. So what do you think we'll be doing in terms of learning objectives today? As you know, this is kind of where we get a little bit geeky, and we expect you to come up with some learning objectives for our listeners, for our students at Lodge. Absolutely. And I think that's the benefit to this podcast, to the clubhouse, is those learning objectives. So first and foremost, want to understand first, where is the Valtellina? Yeah, good question. What is question. the landscape? What yeah. is the climate like? What are we really, where are we playing? Next, we're going to discuss what is the history of the region and what is the history of Arpepe? Because it is a, a winery with so much uh, distinct history uh, of the family. Next, we're going to discuss the grapes, the styles, the different types of wines coming from the area. And then we'll finish up with what sets our Pepe apart as a hero producer from the Valtellina. As in, a, like, you know, heroic viticulture, do you mean? Pretty much. Yeah. All right. Well, sounds all great. I am going to now put on my mute button and leave it up to you, Christopher Sachs. And we'll come back towards the end of the show to see if there are any questions. Okay. Over to you. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Stevie. Uh, I want to, again, start off by saying apologies for any lapse in connection, uh, but I am traveling a bit right now. But uh, I'm very excited to introduce uh, Isabella Pelizati Perego from Arpepe, who, together with her two brothers, Guido and Emmanuel, are the fifth generation of the Arpepe winery. Um, so Isabella was born February 4th in Sondrio, Graduated with a degree in food science, so also a little bit close to myself. I'm a, a culinary arts graduate, so definitely have a love of food and wine at the same time. And she also uh, took part in a, a three-month project at the University College in Cork, Ireland. Uh, from there, she uh, earned her master's degree in enology uh, from the Università Cattolica di Sacro Cuore di Piacenza. Um, pardon all of the Italian pronunciations, super, super white American guy here. So have fun with that. Um, prior to her involvement with Arpepe, she worked as a new product and packaging development department with the United Distillers and Vintners, uh, also known as Diageo, uh, and then took hold of the estate uh, in December 20, uh, 2001, uh, where until today she's been working with her family uh, at the Arpepe uh, estate in Valtellina, of course, following mostly the export and marketing promotion and hospitality departments there. So welcome, Isabella. Hello, Christopher. Hello, everybody. Welcome to be very nice to be with everyone here. And we are so, so happy to have you. Thank you for being here as well. I'm sure it's a pretty busy time out in Valtellina right now. My pleasure. We are in the middle of the harvest, so you can imagine how busy it's all around, but it's fantastic to be talking to you all. 
Lovely, lovely. So thank you so much again for being here. We'll try to keep it nice and sweet while you are in the middle of harvest. So why don't we get started with our first question? Uh, can you share with us the history of the Arpepe winery? Sure. Uh, so Arpepe, uh, together with my brothers, Emanuel and Guido, as you said, we are the fifth generation of a family producing wine since 1860s. So when our great-great-grandfather Giovanni did start and uh, also, the history of our family is also linked to the history of Valtellina because Valtellina has been part of Switzerland for 300 years, from 1512 to Napoleon time. And thanks to the very precise Swiss uh, history, um, our customer was already uh, buying from our great-great-grandfather in 1860. So we can really say that probably the beginning of our family was much earlier than 1860s. But we recall to that date when we got a, a fixed uh, registration together with uh, with that uh, company at that time. And we were celebrating the 100th anniversary in the 1960s together with uh, the great-grandfather and grandfather. At that time, the winery was actually bigger because uh, during the, the Swiss time, the expansion of viticulture was actually much bigger and bigger than what it is today. Believe it or not, up to the beginning of the previous century, we were having still 5,000 hectares. And uh, then due to the wars in Valtellina, we lost a lot of population. Also, a lot of people not only passed, but uh, moved to new countries, uh, not only uh, new words like Americas, North and South and Australia, but also to the cities. So the abandoning of the land has been huge. And uh, we dropped down to the 70s with uh, 3,000 hectares in total in Valtellina. And believe it or not, nowadays we have 850 hectares left only. And uh, up to the 70s, when uh, father, grandfather and our father were working together, we were still having 50 hectares, so five zero. So we were one of the two biggest winery in Valtellina together with the Nino Negri at that time. And... Um, for a family reason, when our grandfather suddenly got ill in 73, they took the decision to divide the winery just to be able to divide the money, let's say. So they sold the old brand that was Arturo Pelizzati, founded by the great-grandfather that was, uh, uh, so Arturo, like our father, they sold the seller. But they didn't sell the vineyards. Vineyards were just divided like a big cake into the family. And it was thanks to this that our father was able to start again a few years later with his own vineyards only. And thankfully, um, this point, vineyards not being sold, was the key thing for us. And having sold a brand, he had to create a new brand. So that's why Arpepe, Arturo Perizzati Perego in short, to keep the initial to keep the name in a different way. So there was a rebirth under our paper in 1984. And, um, and this is the, a new beginning, let's say, for, for all of us. Absolutely. So essentially the brand was sold, but the vineyards were able to be stitched. Exactly. To kind of bring back the, the historical region, uh, the historical holdings that you've had together. So combining those different vineyards, combining that different space, can you explain to us the landscape, kind of paint a picture for us? What is the landscape of uh, Valtellina and where are your vineyard holdings specifically? 
Baltelina, it's really a very nice long east-west valley and on the edge of uh, Lake Como. It's an east valley, so we are very much sheltered into the Alps because we have uh, the north part, the Retic Alps, where the vineyards are on, facing south, while we have the other part of the Alps, the Aerobic Alps, facing uh, north into the south, that are, have no vineyards at all. These are famous for cheese making at the top, but no other cultivation. And uh, because it's a long corridor, it takes benefit also from the presence of Lake Como, which is bringing a lot of beautiful uh, mitigation um, climate into the, the, the entire area. And we always have a a, a beautiful um, wind that is called Breva, that is blowing from uh, west towards east every day, especially in the afternoon. And this special wind is also helping mitigating the area and keeping away the extra humidity that uh, that we don't need. So uh, because it's all south exposed, we do have the same hours of light like, uh, believe it or not, like uh, the south of Sicily, like Cantelleria and all the Sicilian islands. And so it's a very, very unique climate uh, because Nebbiolo has been uh, growing there since ever. And we can actually connect the origin of Nebbiolo back, back probably in a very remote time, probably back to Roman's time. And the major expansion, as we said, was probably in a medieval time when Valterina was part of Switzerland. And um, there is also the serious probability that Nebbiolo was born in Valtellina because this is what genetic is telling us according to this uh, um, such a big biodiversity that, that we have there. And uh, Nebbiolo that we locally call Chiavenasca from a dialect word Chuvinasca, which means more adapt to be transformed into wine, name that has been given to Nebbiolo since ever. Fantastic. And and how is Valtellina broken up into different uh, subregions? And, and where are your parcels uh, within those regions? So in Valtellina, we do have uh, uh, one DOC as Rosso di Valtellina and two DOCG, the Valtellina Superiore DOCG with five historical area. We have the little ones, Maroja, coming from west towards east, and we found Sassella. Grumello, Inferno, and Valgella. And as a family winery, we have vineyards only in three areas. In Sassella, where we have the majority of our vineyards, uh, we have nine hectares and a half. In Grumello area, we have four hectares and a half. And we have one hectare only in the Inferno. We are with our winery in Sondrio, and Sondrio is the city in between Sassella and Grumello, which is just at the base of the big Valmalenco Valley, which is leading up into the Bernina group, the biggest mountains, 4,000 meters, that are always bringing down a lot of nice fresh air from uh, the north through this extra corridor. And we all know that if there's any region that's broken up into smaller subparcels, there has to be differences in soil, right? As Stevie mentioned, we are pretty geeky uh, in this group. So what are the different soil types that uh, are played with? 
Yes, you have to think that uh, the way that the terrace, the vineyards have been meant, they are all in terrace, very steep and stony. So they have been uh, digging the rocks on the mountainside, making the dry stone walls, and then they were filled up with a little soil around. If, if the soil was not enough, they were taking the soil back up on their shoulder, it's, which is a soil of the river. So it's, it is called Franco Sabioso. It's a fragmented, rocky, sandy soil. It's a low pH soil. There's nearly no clay anyway. It's kind of poor and draining a lot. But apparently Nebbiolo has been growing so well in this environment and really has been uh, uh, getting more and more, um, let's say, great approach into this uh, this area. And so Nebbiolo has been grown there beautifully since ever. So so we have a poor rocky soil that is well draining that needs to it, be sometimes carried back up the hill and replaced after it erodes down. That must mean a lot of, of hands-on management uh, in the vineyards. Is there anything additional that is done? Uh, how are the vineyards managed themselves? Well, of course, all the vineyards are completely manually, so there's no possibility of mechanization at all. So from when you put a plant after the harvest, everything is manual. And we have roughly 1,500 hours per hectare per year, which means one person per hectare per year to do all the work. And if you consider that... uh, you know, on a hillside, uh, when you are not lucky, it's about 500 hours per hectare. So we are three times more than a hillside because uh, we cannot do anything else. So our machinery, our, our legs and the way we go around. But it's fantastic because we do not also compact the soil too much because we only walk, walk in there. It's very delicate, our approach. And also the, gar- the grass, you need to do like a garden with their rotative ones, because you cannot enter with any machinery. And this makes us very kind of a soft approach to all our vineyards and uh, without uh, at all any mechanization. And we'll definitely come back to that soft, delicate approach when we discuss the wines themselves in a little bit. But um, what is the winery's view towards sustainability and organics, knowing that everything is done by hand, everything is sustainable, or everything is done very delicately and by hand? What else uh, goes into the, the, the sustainability of the winery and the region as a whole? We've been doing a lot of efforts in the past uh, years in that direction. And even though we cannot be defined organic, but because we are doing the so-called integrated agriculture where we try to reduce as much as possible all the the chemicals every year according to these uh, protocols that are regional and then we have every single province as a a single and different approach, but it's going to be under control, constant and constant. We've been doing as much as possible to um, use the resource that we have. And for example, we've been doing a lot of work with geothermy. Uh, You have to think that our cellar is all digging to the mountain, but it's like a stilt house built on a lake because just three meters down, we do have a lot of water, which has a constant temperature around 12, 13 degrees. And we are using this resource either to cool down and warm up 
Each single tank, either wood, steel or concrete, and also the environment in the cellar. This is so important because we have a fixed temperature of 16 degrees into our cellar and we try to be as much careful as a physical approach, so to try to maintain our wines during the aging in the perfect situation. And also we are very much uh, careful about uh, potential uh, oxidation during the aging. And we've been creating also on-site a creation of nitrogen directly. And so all our wines are in the right temperature in without potential oxidation, either during vinification, but also during the long aging. So we try to work as much as possible uh, in this way. And also we take advantage of our beautiful sunshine because uh, we are producing our own energy through um, photovoltaic panel, solar panel, to try to be independent energetically. And uh, so this is very important for us to try to, to work in the best way. And I love how you're talking so much about geothermal and elect- uh, photovoltaic, so uh, solar panels, as opposed to chemical changes that are happening in the vineyards or not happening in the vineyards. You're using the actual earth itself and then the, the essences that we have. So the last question about the vineyards uh, before we get into the actual winemaking, but you had mentioned that these vineyards are terraced, they're worked by hand. Uh, What are we talking about in terms of um, uh, aspect or in terms of uh, elevation here? We need to, so we are definitely in a cool climate area and we, we go from the bottom of the valley where we are at 300 meters and our vineyards in the hub upper part are at 600 meter. There are some parts also in Valgella where we go beyond 700 meter, but as far as we are involved into Sassella, Grumelo, Inferno, the highest in the upper part of Sassella is 600 meter. And, um, and of course, inside each single zone, we do have so many um, different uh, aspects because either in terms of elevation and exposure, you also have to think that it's a long east-west valley with so many perpendicular valley bringing in and out a lot of fresh or warm air from north and south. So you really define inside each single area so many different, uh, different and peculiar uh, single vineyard from which you can get significant different wines, uh, first of all, of course, of grapes. Well, and, and that brings up a great point, and our, our great pivot for us is you have these great grapes that you've, you've labored over by hand. I keep stressing that by hand part because of all the elevation and the, the terracing here, but you have these great grapes, and now you bring them to the winery post-harvest, what do you do with them? What are your winemaking techniques and your winemaking philosophy? So the big objective for us is to try not to damage the great quality that we do our best to produce in our vineyards by bringing them into the cellar. So this is the first key point that our dad and granddad were saying to us. So we do our best in full respect of our raw materials, that are the grapes, to try to preserve the quality. So all our grapes are brought off, as we said, by hand. We also pick 
through very small basket that you can also see on our website. And uh, in those baskets, we try to let the, the grapes traveling without any single transfer. So the, the grapes are only transferred into the distem machinery when they enter the cellar, but they have there are never any juice around because they are carefully taken and um, positioned into the basket. And uh, all our grapes are fully distemmed. And uh, it's also very important that uh, we are now using a more uh, clever new machinery that distem our grapes like if you were doing manually. So we like to leave the berries as much intact as possible. We try not to press at all, but only the stem, like uh, like pearl out of the, the stem. And uh, we go for fermentation in Troncoconic Tini, 5,000 liter, all bent by steam and not by fire, because we never want any toasty notes in our wines. And by doing this, we also cool down uh, our berries uh, slightly in order to uh, avoid uh, a, a big, uh, uh, let's say, start of the fermentation. We want the fermentation to start as more slowly as possible. By doing this, we also uh, keep under nitrogen and uh, CO2 in order to avoid oxidation from the very early stage. And this is very important because we want our fermentation to start spontaneously because we work only with the spontaneous yeast. Uh, we just use, of course, a little bit of sulfur to uh, naturally select from uh, the, let's say, the unpleasant yeast. And then we allow the fermentation to start very slowly. And uh, by doing this, we've been experimenting more and more also longer and longer maceration. But again, there's no fixed recipe by doing this. We need to be very careful and understanding on each vintage, whether we have a stronger or softer skin. And so everything is done according to the vintage. So this is very, very important. And uh, everything is done by tasting and tasting and tasting constantly by the time we are doing our vinification. So the same philosophy as out in the vineyard, there's no one single dogmatic approach to the process. It's, it's tasted, it's handcrafted, it's, it's specifically uh, manipulated as needed. And I'm actually looking through some of my notes from when you visited the Skernick offices in New York back in May. Some of your macerations go as long as 100 days. 130 days we've been uh, uh, for the longest time, which is uh, which seems so long. But again, um, they it's so important for us not to detect uh, too much uh, strong strength in maceration. So maceration it's important for us because we believe Nebbiolo has a lot of uh, positive things to release from the skins. It's so complex. But we never want to reach too much. So it's not that we want to make absolutely maceration, long maceration. We need to understand as much as it, it is needed on that 
specific vintage. So if at some point we notice that uh, we start getting some off notes of extra maceration, that means that we've been going further too much. So it's important not to go beyond that point, but stop before until you see improvement. And if you don't see any more improvement, then it's time to stop. So this is very important for us. And this is also done in terms of long gauging in the barrels, because, uh, for example, they all spend a, a full year into our Troncoconic Tini that are made uh, uh, either in Slavonian oak, in French oak, but also the majority of the wood in the cellar is the mix of chestnut wood with a touch of oak and a touch of acacia into the same barrel. And this used to be um, historical and traditionally up to the 70s, and we do like to keep uh, this very special mix of wood as the majority of uh, our barrels, because uh, especially if a vintage we decide is going to be reserva, so it's going to be with longer aging, we will then dedicate our eldest barrel that are now 55 years old, and we will put all our um, reservas into those eldest barrel. And they are so specific, and each single cruise reserva has its own single home. So we try to put always in each single one uh, to preserve the approach that each single barrel has on our reservas. And uh, in this place, we might be leaving our reserva additional two, three years or more, depending again on each single vintage. But all this processing is done, as we said under nitrogen, so we like to keep our wines fully covered to avoid any losses of uh, flavor and uh, structure by doing our long aging process. And also, as we said, at the constant temperature that is done through geothermy. So this is very important uh, for us because, um, again, there's no recipe also into the long aging process one vintage might need a little bit more one vintage less but it's important that we try to achieve the best expression out of every single vintage so it's that delicate balance of uh long aging uh long maceration of traditional oak uh, and a little bit of chestnut a little bit of acacia that really brings things into balance and brings a sense of history and style to your winery we really think that all this care uh, by preserving the the product that you get in each single uh, vineyard, and uh, we are very proud of also this uh, very historical uh, place where we own our vineyards. And so we just try to be as much careful in all the processing to preserve the best character that we get out of every single one. And now if I may ask a, a more uh, divisive question here, what sets Arpepe and the Valtellina as a whole apart from its brothers, uh, if you would consider them brothers, Biolo in Piedmont? Well, what we love is that uh, in Valtellina, it's a much more cool climate area. It's a mountain Nebbiolo, a Nebbiolo from the Alps, as we like to call it. So, 
you can get, uh, and if you close your eyes while you're tasting the wine, you can see the mountain that is behind. And I think this is a plus for our wines because uh, even though we've been having few warmer vintages, we are still around 14 degrees alcohol. So we are further cooler than uh, the Lange, I think. And these help us getting wines that are much more uh, easy drinking, balanced with a lot of minerality, that I think makes Valtellina like uh, in the right place in the right time today. That's our feeling. Oh, and I, I f- fully agree, going back to Stevie's question of, of why uh, am I infatuated with your wines, is because while they have that elevated alcohol, they are at that, that 14%, they're a cooler climate, so longer hang time, more ripeness, more drinkability in its youth, um, as well as, of course, in its, in its older age, which I want to uh, dive into now as well. Um, you have some quite deep cellars at Arpepe. Is there a particular vintage that you're in love with? Well, uh, we, of course, love all our babies because uh, these are all products out of our family. But uh, it's I know, so it's, it's almost like asking you for your favorite child. <laughs> That's the feeling. But uh, I can tell uh, because um, this is something we cannot repeat anymore. But I was proud enough and lucky to be there when our father was uh, opening uh, his last few bottles to celebrate uh, the 60th birthday in uh, 2002. He was opening his last few bottles of 1942. And even though 42 was not an astonishing vintage, I can tell you that I was so impressed of how much freshness and minerality, some gooseberry notes that I was recalling in this wine, even though they were coming from the past and they were probably not be able to be open again because my father decided to drink them all with their friends uh, in his party, 60s party, so no complaint, but it was incredibly fresh. And despite the fact that 1942 was not an incredible vintage, it was kind of a normal vintage, and only because was our father's birth was kept. And so I think it was an incredible um, I taught for all of us because... Uh, by tasting this wine, you understood the potential of a valley, of a region. And, uh, and I, I love the way those wines are aging beautifully, preserving the mountain character and uh, the freshness. So they always seem younger in comparison to other regions. That's at least as far as my understanding and tasting so far. Oh, absolutely. And uh, so we've, we've learned a little bit about the vineyards. We've learned about your process. We've learned a little bit about the winemaking. Um, let's learn a little bit more about you, if we will. Um, if you had the choice and the chance to make wine anywhere else in the world, where would you go? Well, since we love challenges, I think I would go to the Mosul for my best uh, uh, white grape that is Riesling. So it could be another challenge for me and uh, still keep uh, my mountain uh, feeling uh, a little bit more north. So I think it could be my first uh, place to go. 
Absolutely. Maybe not so much terraced, but incredibly steep slopes. Uh, so you, you would feel a little bit at home, I guess, in a similar style. I definitely think so. And, uh, and so, yes, I think I always like uh, when you get a, a mountain uh, feeling into the wines. And for sure, this is something we, we can get in the Mosul wines, uh, for sure. And in, in the same vein of go, not necessarily going to the Mosul, but do you have any inspirations, any winemakers or idols that uh, inspired you in the wine world? Well, considering people that do so much uh, research and uh, they never stop uh, learning and they want precision first, I think Roberto Toconterno would be our inspiration person. He's a friend also. And uh, we've been uh, taking a lot of uh, a lot of thoughts, and uh, we are always happy to discuss and ad- get advices and and understanding, because I think uh, he has been doing something amazing in his life, and uh, and keeps doing and never stops. Wonderful. At the very beginning of our of our discussion, you had mentioned that the region is is known for its cheese. Um, are there any specific food pairings or regional specialties that uh, would pair exceptionally well with your wines? Well, for sure, uh, cheeses will be a perfect pairing. And in Valtellina, we do have a, a DOP cheese that is so fantastic that is made only during the summertime. That is called Bito, Bito cheese that is made on the aerobic calf, so on the part where we do not have vineyards, but up. In uh, above 1,300 meters up to 3,000, we do have pastures. And during the summertime, they bring cows. The our typical um, um, Bruno Alpina, the the type of uh, of cows that we do have uh, in the valley, that we brought up to the, the pastures. And this cheese is made only when. The cows are on pastures and they do not have anything to, to eat apart from the fresh grass. And so they follow the pasture from the beginning up to the, the top of the season when they reach the top elevation and then they come down and they start eating the grass that has been growing in the meantime. So it's a fantastic cheese that can be aged up to 10 years, sometimes even more, and can be uh, match with our food, of course, exceptionally. But uh, what I love with our Valtellina wines in general is that they are so flexible. So you can have a fantastic pairing from the fresh trout from the Alpine Lake, even raw if you want, uh, up to the game meat on top of the cheese, of course. And of course, we do have a lot of buckwheat in the region. Buckwheat is our main ingredients from which we make our famous uh, pasta called pizzoccheri, which is a, a buckwheat tagliatelle made uh, with uh, cooked with potatoes and cabbage. And then you use the other DOP cheese, which is the Valtellina Casera cheese that we are using in our main preparation. And then we also use the fried butter on top with some garlic to melt up and it's so fantastic and it's so wintry cozy dish uh, but we also do a lot with uh, polenta back with polenta and uh, again with cheese and uh, so it's very good also for vegetarian and uh, we had uh, 
in our cuisine, uh, less meat and more uh, cheese for sure, because it was a much more poor kind of uh, cuisine up in the old days. And then we were also using a lot the nuts, so either walnut and um, chestnut, of course. And so a lot of alpine preparations using all these ingredients, which makes uh, the cuisine so interesting, so different. And of course, not to forget about the mushrooms, mushrooms from the Alps, our beautiful uh, porcini mushrooms, poletus, that are so incredible, either with rice, with tagliatelle and whatever. So we are very much uh, proud of all the mountain cuisine that we can uh, share with all the tourists visiting Valtellina. Wonderful. And that brings up two different points that you just said there about the visiting tourists, because I actually want to turn our attention to the world market as, uh, at large. Um, first and foremost, uh, do you see a lot of tourists that are coming to the area and coming to visit uh, RPP specifically? And uh, we'll, we'll touch on the, the rest of the world market in a moment. I have to see that uh, there is more and more people coming to Valtellina to discover, uh, thanks to all the things that we've been doing in the past few years. Valtellina have always been more known for skiing resorts, so as a sportive, uh, but it's been more and more uh, discovered as a food and wine region. And I think in this direction still have uh, a lot of potential growth because uh, we could certainly work uh, 365 days a year in this direction and bringing more and more people to discover the beauty of the valley, not only uh, during summertime or wintertime, but also in spring and fall, because it's always so beautiful and there are always so much to discover and uh, we see the the tourism growing uh, slowly slowly but um, it is significantly growing and we see with a lot of people visiting us uh, we just uh, have a problem that it's because we are a small family winery we cannot welcome as many people as they would like to visit us because uh, we try also to put so much care into the the, the hospitality to the welcome uh, because um, we try to do our visit ourselves and not to have uh, let's say someone else a hostess or anything anyone doing this for us so because we do ourselves uh, there's always kind of a limited time to dedicate and uh, if we are traveling around the world or to wine first etc it's hard to welcome at the same time well, and that goes to Stevie. That, that's part of the reason why there's no wine available in some of our restaurants whenever she's going out, because uh, there's so many tourists who are getting turned on to the region and buying it themselves. So we'll have to figure out a balance there. But now, Isabella, well, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I just mean, and unfortunately, we have only 15 hectares. So even though we would love to produce more, we cannot increase uh, more. And then, of course, uh, we have to respect that every season is different. So we also face vintages with no bottles, so which has been uh, struggling us later on in the market, of course. But uh, this is part of the game, uh, part of the nature. So 
we can hope uh, in a generous vintage, but we also need to accept and uh, understand that they are not all the same. And, uh, and so the idea is to be placing our wines in the best uh, restaurants all over the world. So that's the objective. So we focus on that. Uh, but of course, to, since we have always new market on board that they want to discover, they knock our door. Uh, it's really hard to, to be able to, to give more to everyone. So they, the challenge in the future will be to, to give the right amount of wine to each single one and not to leave anyone without. Yeah, it's a fun game of being in the right place at the right time to find the wines that you, that you so desire. Exactly, so but we are doing our best. Absolutely, absolutely, and it shows. So we're getting towards the end, but I want to wrap up a little bit here by uh, talking about uh, changing consumer tastes and, and the, uh, the world market. So specifically in the U.S., it's very common that everyone loves big, rich, red wines, Napa Valley, it's structured. Now, are you noticing a change in the trends and in the people that are uh, attracted to the RPP wines? Are you noticing a change in the way you're making wines to adapt to that? Well, I have to say that uh, we do not have to make a change because, as we said, we just try to respect our grapes and produce uh, the best uh, out of every single vintage. But what we notice across my more than 20 years into the winery, how much the market itself has been changing because uh, when I began, uh, there was so much attention into big international wine, very full of wood and very full of texture and very rich and uh, sometimes hard to drink. And what I see is the beauty that the, the world, in a way, has been changing the taste towards more terroir wines, more easy to drink wine, more... Uh, mineral, um, really easy to approach and even easy to match with food. So I think that we've always been in that position. But of course, when people were seeking for different wines, we were uh, not receiving the same attention. We've never been moving that much from that point and believing that a wine is like a food. Uh, so it's something that you need to enjoy until the end of the bottle, if possible, and uh, really to, to be pairing uh, with whatever food you like. And I really think also in this moment, we are in the right uh, place, in the right time, because uh, Baltelina has this character. And, uh, and I think uh, we must be all very proud because uh, it's really a character of our Nebbiolo, our cool climate Nebbiolo as this kind of character. So it's very important for us also to use. So for us, the wood is important for micro-oxygenation across the long aging, but we never want the wood to give uh, additional taste to the wine. So the respect for, again, the type of wine, the, everything is done in that direction for us. And we just want to achieve a wine that is preserving his life across time. 
And uh, we are also very happy that now we can work with less and less sulfur, for example, because we are using Nomacork as our closure that has been bringing a lot of uh, new um, attention for us uh, because it goes in the right direction. Reducing sulfur was always an objective, but without a, a secure closure like uh, like this, we are only working with Nomacork Reserva, which is the top category in that uh, made with the sugar cane biopolymer. So we know exactly, and it's also recyclable. So we know exactly the way we can deliver the wine to the customer without uh, really deviation that could be coming from uh, natural cork. And this is for us, it's another very important point because uh, we want to deliver the wine in the best possible condition until to the consumer. And I mean, using that, the, those normal corks even go, and you mentioned they're, they're recyclable. It goes further to talk about sustainability as well. But um, the, the last couple of questions that I have for you here, uh, we had talked at the very beginning of the decreasing amount of vineyard space, the vineyard land holdings that are in Valtolina uh, to around the 500 uh, hectare space now. What can we do or what is being done? Is Are, are the vineyards being grown in any way shape or form are there is there more land being acquired or being changed to to grow the the production so the objective is to try not to lose any more land because the property is still very much fragmented nowadays we have uh, still 2000 little vine growers out of these 850 hectares so it's very important that exactly what's going on around uh, yourself in order to preserve any extra abandoning because we've been far losing too much and the forest has been taking the majority some part has been transformed into apple tree the positive thing in this is that uh, now in the past 20 years we jumped from about 20 producer to more than 50 producers some are very very small but this is so important because every one of them is um, an actor important to preserve all the land that we have left and they can um, avoid any possible abandoning around and closer to their own vineyards and also all these small viticulture can act so well to preserve and to preserve the identity of each single plot. This is so special. And also, we are very proud to be the first winery entering into FIVI, the Federation of the Italian Independent Winery, which is so important to preserve uh, also our style, our terroir. And uh, my brother Emanuele is also the delegate of the, the team of the Valtrina um, group from Fivi, so like the Seville in France. So this is very important to be able to to preserve uh, all our characters and to avoid any extra abandoning. At the same time, we are doing our best to try to reconquer very few pieces around our vineyards that have been only recently abandoned. Even though it's another challenge because uh, it's not always easy. Whatever has been left and uh, lost, can be lost forever unless uh, we try to act uh, promptly. And uh, on this way, we need to work also politically to try 
to, uh, let's say, resist and to keep the possibility of uh, planting again uh, those small little parts. So this is very, very important again. Yeah, as with most, th- most things in our world, uh, global warming, vineyard holdings, uh, we have to be proactive to try to uh, fix the problems before they become irreversible. But with that, Isabella, I want to thank you again. That is uh, all of the questions that I have for you. I'm going to uh, offer you the floor for a moment if there's anything that we didn't touch on that you want to uh, speak about. And then I'll open the floor uh, back to Stevie and to any questions if there's any out there. Uh, if... Uh... We have more questions. It will be very welcome, of course. Okay, that's my special effect. Thank you so much, you guys. What a wonderful discussion we've had. Uh, we've learned so much. I do have well, I, more than a question. There was Andre Baklin from Latvia. He said, last opera wine, Rocca Rossi Risalve 1996, was stunning. So that's from Andre. Uh, much appreciated. I do have a question, Isabella. Would you mind just giving us an overview of the number of labels you have and the production, like the volume, the number of bottles you produce? Sure, Stevie. So we, when we are lucky, we produce kind of a 100,000 bottle out of our vineyards in total uh, right in total Mm -hmm. which is a lot but not a lot to cover the entire world for sure and uh, we do have uh, 11 labels but uh, um, we are not absolutely making all of them every year for example rosso di valtellina was born in vintage 2003 the hottest vintage Mm -hmm. ever where we made only that wine out of all our vineyards and after that everyone was expecting that wine to be available every year so we decided to dedicate a portion of our grapes nearly every every year dedicating the grapes that would peak below 400 meter to the rosso but then let's say we dedicate the best exposure from 400 to 600 meter either to the valtellina superiore if the vintage is a bit more prompt or to the reserva if the vintage needs more time so there is also an interesting chart into our website on the the part where we talk about the wines mm-hmm. and you can see which wines have been produced in each vintage this is very much giving uh-huh. an idea okay of uh, how our production has been divided across the years for example in between 10 and 20 we made only three reserva vintages we made only 13 16 and 18 uh-huh. that is also why the reserva have been lacking a little bit around in the past uh, years because sometimes we've been remaining out of stock with one waiting for the next vintage to be released so we also try to be a bit strict according to the best timing because we do not want just to release if something gets sold out but we wait until the wine is ready and this is very important for us um, so you're still harvesting you said right when will you be finished with your harvest this year well it really depends on the weather mm-hmm. because uh, uh, there is uh, some bad weather that is arriving. We hope to be finished at the beginning of next week. Okay. So how does it how, how does it look for you now? You're almost towards the end of the harvest. What is this vintage looking like for you in terms of both in quantity and quality? So it has been a very challenging vintage because also we've been affected by hailstorms, right. which is uh, the risk number one every year. 
What about Peronospora? What about downy mildew? We've actually been having mildew much less, so we were managing to cover that point, but a storm came and did uh, the biggest uh, problems. Uh, I have to say that also it would have been absolutely a reserve of vintage without the ail storm at the very beginning, so we were very confident. And we were also having quite a bit of quantity together with the quality before ail storm. Surprisingly, we are noticing that uh, some quantity has been saved despite uh, the ail storm. So let's say that every day that we are tasting also the virus that are fermenting, we are getting kind of a better and better uh, result. We are getting beyond uh, the expectation that they were not very high after the ail storm. So we still don't know exactly where right. we will be, but uh, for sure not Reserva, that's uh, that's 100%. But uh, we are getting better and better feeling every day. So we will see. Okay. We will do for sure our best. We oh. still pray. Okay, well, good luck to you, Isabella, to you and your family. And I think we're, I'm going to close up the room for now. I'm going to bring back Laika, Laika, who has COVID at home. Laika, are you okay? <laughs> no, How are you feeling today? All good, all good, recovering a little by little, but thanks a lot for the care and everything. Okay, you're such anyway, a good sport. So, so tell us what's up next. Is it next week or Thursday? Yes, it's next week, October 26th at 5.30 p.m. So we've got Anna Obuhovskaya. She will be interviewing Alessandra Tesari from Cantina di Monteforte. That's it. Okay, so I should be back. I'm I'm going stateside tomorrow. So anybody who's will be in New York for a wine experience, I'll be attending that Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So ping me if you are in the hood. And that's it for now. I'm going to sign off. My name's Stevie Kim. I'm here with Laika and our guest, Ambassador's Corner, moderated by Christopher Sachs. Great job. And, of course, Isabella from Our Pepe. Alla prossima. Ciao, ragazzi. Sure. Sure. Thanks for being here. Sure. Sure. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.